Welcome to this special edition of the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This interview is with international best-selling author Orson Scott Card, author of Ender's Game, and contest judge. He's also one of our instructors for the Writers of the Future workshop. Today we are going to talk about an essay used in the winter workshop by Elrun Hubbard called Magic Out of a Hat. Welcome, Scott. Hi, it's good to be here. So um, I just want to discuss that for a little bit here just on, I guess, the value of some of this material that was written 60, 70 years ago and its value as it pertains now to still uh, being involved in creative writing. Well, the thing that amazes me is that uh, L. Ron Hubbard was at the top of the field. I mean, he was one of the few writers who could not just make a living, but make a very good living as a writer. Now, you'd think that uh, he would be interested in making sure there was no competition for his slots in the magazines, but his, his impulse was the exact opposite. Not only d- did he uh, endow and create the Writers of the Future Contest, which culminates in an anthology so that every winner is published by the end of the contest instead of just having a little certificate or a trophy or whatever that they can tell an editor about when they're submitting a story. No, they have a story in the best read anthology period. Uh, These stories that win, that are published in the uh, anthology, they're a start to a career. So many writers who were completely unknown, unpublished or only published once, uh, or in obscure places like their website. Um, so many writers have launched a career that brought them to prominence in the field and made them not just influenced by, but an influence on other writers. Uh, this I, I have to regard this as one of the greatest successes in L. Ron Hubbard's extremely successful career. He was a writer who looked out for other writers. And I think that's cool. Uh, It's one of the things that I love best about the science fiction field is that, well, you know, there are the normal number of jerks and Mm -hmm. twits in in the science fiction field. There are an awful lot of people who are kind to newcomers, take them under their wing, help them to get over the hurdles of life uh, as a writer. And I've had some spectacular confrontations with people who thought they were doing that but missed. Uh, But I've had some great relationships with people who were really being kind and good. Uh, We were talking earlier today about uh, Harlan Ellison, Mm -hmm. and I miss him so much because in his own writings, he taught me a lot about writing. His wonderful Partners in Wonder where he talked about collaborating with other writers and then showed the stories that came from that collaboration. He was teaching me what writing is and teaching me that it's a really dumb idea to collaborate. Uh, I still have done it, but but he was absolutely right uh, to quote the old maxim that collaborating on a story is twice the work for half the money. But uh, it's really four times the work for less than half the money. Anyway, um, the thing is that from the beginning, Harlan, who had a reputation as being an enfant terrible and being horrible, you can't get along with him, he'll fly into a tirade or whatever, he always treated me with grace and kindness because that's who he really was. And that's what he did for anyone who wasn't deliberately trying to pick a fight with him, which I wasn't because I'm not stupid and because I loved his work. He was one of my great teachers, whether he knew it or not. So that's what L. Ron Hubbard uh, has been doing. What he did even at the time, long before the contest, was founded. 
this essay, Magic Out of a Hat, uh, recounts how a writer friend challenged him to write a story about a certain kind of Russian hat, a kubanka, a furry hat, uh, that would become an important, meaningful story. And so Hubbard describes his own thought processes in how he goes about coming up with the story. And what I found most significant was he didn't instantly go, oh, yeah, I know how to do this, and start writing. No. He thought, well, the easiest thing to do would be to have a whole bunch of people shooting at each other. Uh, you know, we have a situation which is on the Eastern Front in World War I, or, uh, well, yeah, on the Eastern Front in World War I with a uh, Czech uh, who is interested in trying to uh, defeat uh, Germany, and so the fall of Russia because of the Bolshevik Revolution threatened to make it so that the Eastern Front would just collapse and the Germans would be able to take all of their troops, all of their material to the West and fling it at the French and British and finally Americans. Um, there was a lot at stake and readers at the time would know what this was. But Hubbard didn't want to write an adventure story where a lot of people get shot. Um, it's not that he was against writing fiction where people get shot. Good heavens, he wouldn't have had a career if, that, if he forbade right, himself right. to do that at that era. But uh, he didn't want to write just an action story. He wanted to have a story where a character mattered and where this hat mattered. It just wasn't something that rolled off the head of someone who was shot. It's, it's an important plot point. And so he thought of the old poem that about for want of a nail, the shoe was lost, for want of a shoe, the horse was lost, the rider was lost, the message went undelivered, and so the battle was lost. And he, he wanted to set up that situation. Now, having said that, you kind of know the story outline, but you don't know the specifics. And that was one of the gifts that Hubbard had, is that he could very quickly, pre-internet, pre-Google, figure out what he needed to know in the way of facts in order to tell the story. And he got that information. Some of it came straight out of his head because there were things that everybody knew who was alive at the end of the Great War. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there were things that he simply invented that might have been possible or true, but no, it didn't matter. What mattered was that it happened to this character in this story. And so it's true within the story. And, uh, and so while he doesn't actually give us the story itself, he tells us what the story was going to be, what it became. So that, in effect, instead of doing the showing part of the story, which is where we'd see some scenes developed with dialogue and so on, he implies those, he hints at those, and he gives us the told story, which is, I think, the real story, in that the scenes are nice, but and if you can write them well, great, that's what we'll remember. But it's the told portion of the story, the narrative, that's what's completely translatable. That's what can be turned into a movie. That's what can be changed from one medium to another. It's what happened and why, that simple, basic story. Not the plot, that's not the plot. Plot is which scenes you're going to show and who's present for them. But the story is what happened and why. And so Hubbard describes going from what amounts to a prompt, you know, some idea that's a trigger that makes you start to think, mm -hmm. to the process you go through in order to turn it into something that will be memorable, where at the end of the story you go, that was a story. Awesome. So it's this 
and along with several other essays, mostly from uh, Mr. Hubbard, but also Algis Budras, um, has some of the essays that are part of the writer's workshop. I think the main thing from that whole time period of the golden age, even up to post-golden age, just the whole idea of paying it forward, providing something for the aspiring writer to be able to hold on to. And some truths, do you find that certain truths hold true? Or is, is there well, a... Langu- language is language. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a real fan of John McWhorter, who does linguistics and language history courses for the great courses from mm-hmm. the teaching company. Or is it the learning company? I can never remember which one. In in the older language, it didn't matter. Learning and teaching were the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you <laughs> learn somebody something or you teach them. Um, so I think that's the way it works in my tiny head. But the the things that I've, that I've learned from him are that language is language. There's no higher language than another language. Even more formal English is not better in some intrinsic moral way than very common language. Everyone is fluent in their native language. Mm-hmm. Everyone has perfect grammar in their native language. Even if that grammar sounds like it comes straight out of the hills of eastern Kentucky, it's still perfect grammar in the language you were raised in. It may not be perfect in the eyes of some professor somewhere, but I don't actually care. So everyone's fluent, everyone has language, everyone has a language that is capable of expressing everything. Uh, One of his favorite things to debunk is that nonsense idea that Eskimos have like 100 words for snow and we have only one. Well, we don't have only one, we have sleet, we have ice, we have, you know, there are all kinds of conditions of snow, drifts, etc. We have plenty of words for to describe different conditions of snow, just like anybody who ever lived in snow has to have. You have to be able to talk about your environment. So what I realize when, you know, looking at what L. Ron Hubbard did in his, in his era, in the golden age, mm-hmm. he was at the top of his profession, but that doesn't mean that because many years have passed, the techniques he used don't still apply. They all still apply. The job of a storyteller is to give an ordered presentation of causally related events. So the business of the storyteller is to tell what happened and why, Mm -hmm. as clearly as possible and in in an order that will make sense to the audience. Whether you're writing something to be performed on radio, audio only, or you're performing something that will be a movie, uh, you're writing something rather, or whether you're composing something that will go onto the boards as a play or fiction, you still have the same job. And fiction still has primacy among all of these as a storytelling genre, storytelling medium, because with all the others, there are interpreters who are helping the audience by performing the work. You've got actors, you've got visuals, but when you write fiction, the reader becomes the performer. The reader, even though they're reading silently, in fact, even if you're a a reader who never even moves your lips, reading is processed through the auditory center of the brain. It's processed as if you were listening. That's why when you're reading a book and you come upon a name or a word that you can't pronounce, you're stopped cold. Uh, if That's you were, interesting. I didn't know yeah, that. If, that you're, if you were hearing it performed, yeah. you just let it pass on by. You're not going to back up your audio book in order to hear what was said because that's so tedious. It doesn't work very right. well. But uh, when you're reading it, 
you're going to stop until you've figured out how to pronounce that word. And if you have a name that remains unpronounceable, uh, it becomes a continuous barrier for people reading it. So Hubbard faced the barriers in presenting fiction because fiction has to be so clearly written that an untrained reader on a cold reading first time through can understand everything that is said without anybody slowing down, without the reader ever having to stop and go back and reread. I mean, once they do that, you've, you know, you're proven to be incompetent at writing clear, clear fiction. You never have to do that with Hubbard. You just don't have to do that. Right. Uh, and so he's using a technique that we also use now. Fashions change. Certain kinds of stories go into and out of vogue. I remember when The Godfather was a brand new hit, you'd walk into a bookstore and there would be a mafia section. And that wasn't for mafiosi who came in to buy books. That right. was books about the mafia. Crime books, yes, but no, they would organize crime. It was the mafia because it spawned a genre. Briefly, you won't find that section anymore. But there were so many imitators. For a while there, all young adult fiction seemed to be dystopian. They didn't need a label, dystopian young adult fiction, because the other section of fiction that was young adult but not dystopian would have been about three shelves. And you just didn't have right. to label it uh, because these things move in waves. He had waves that he lived through. When we talk about golden age fiction, uh, science fiction, it means a certain kind of story. What it really means is fiction written before Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and others wrecked the one-idea story. They wrecked it by telling all the good one-idea stories. There are hardly any left to tell. I mean, once you've had Arthur C. Clarke's The Star, anybody who thinks they're going to be able to work The Star of Bethlehem into a science fiction story is insane. It's been done. And so when, he, when Hubbard wrote science fiction, he wrote it before all the good ideas had been used up. Now we have to do a very different thing. We have to create societies that depend on differences in the culture because of technolo technological change or evolutionary change or whatever, uh, planetary change, gravity change, whatever it is, we have to deal with the whole society and with how it impacts individuals and relationships. We have to write fiction, mainstream fiction, literary fiction, whatever. It has to be, it's just science fiction because it's in a different milieu. Hubbard lived in that, the golden age, meaning it's free. Everything's free. You can just do whatever you want because it ain't been done before. Right. Yeah, the genre was new. The term science fiction had only recently been coined. Hugo Gernsback was still trying to get people to use scientifiction, which can't be used because you can't place the accent. It's either scientific shun or scientifiction, and neither one works. So right. he was wrong, didn't work. You can't dictate what the language will do. We ended up with science fiction. Now, I don't particularly know that much about science, except that because I write something called science fiction, I have to keep up. But don't expect me to be able to slide rule something and build a spaceship. I not only don't know, I don't care enough to try to do that. Mm -hmm. And Hubbard didn't do that either. He didn't go into science fiction as somebody who was fanatical about space. And so he was going to know everything about space. No, he was fanatical about writing and telling stories. And he knew he was good at that. And so the science stuff could all just be black boxed. You'll make it work the way he made stuff work in his story about dealing with this Russian hat at the, uh, toward the end of World War I. He didn't have to elaborate. He knew that he would be able to when he needed to. 
And that's what we know today. So did he face the same problems as us? Well, no, he was writing in a different time to different people. Now, if I was going to set something at the end of of World War I, I would have to do a lot of setup to explain the importance of the continued survival of the Tsar as a focal point of resistance to the Bolshevik Revolution. Because I can't count on any American student, college graduate or otherwise, history major or otherwise, actually knowing about that period. I've read about it. I've studied it. I knew instantly, but there are only about nine of us left. I'm exaggerating. There are <laughs> 40. Uh, but uh, but not that many people have studied that much, read that much about the Great War to be able to instantly grasp what this story is about. So Hubbard, if he knew that he was writing for an audience that didn't know, would simply have given them enough exposition so that they did know, so that by the time they got to a climax, they understood all the implications that the uh, story had raised. And so... When you don't, Milton talked about this, that that he was looking for a fit audience. And the thing that's ironic is I hear this being quoted by scholars, Milton scholars, who dedicated their lives to this author, and they miss the point of what he meant by a fit audience. They think that he's writing for an audience of scholars who've looked up all of his sources and know where he got every single idea from. But no. Milton was a believing Puritan Christian. And when he writes about the fall of Satan and about Adam and Eve and their fall in the garden, tempted by Satan, the fit audience is the audience of believers. It's the audience of people to whom this story is sacred and is the foundational moment of life on earth to a committed Puritan Christian which just means a Calvinist Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they missed the point. The fit audience was the audience that Milton hoped to make fit by writing Paradise Lost in such a way that it would help affirm their faith in Jesus Christ and their faith in the God that cast Satan out of heaven. And when he fails, as he does with every scholar who approaches his sources only, Uh, that is really not his failure, that's theirs. They don't want to become the fit audience. They want to read him from a remove. They want to stand off and view him through a telescope. But L. Ron Hubbard doesn't write for an audience that is examining from a distance or that's taking a microscope to it to use a different uh, Mm -hmm. optical in order to examine every word and every metaphor and whatever. He's not writing for those people. Who is? Nobody wants them because... They're never going to see the story. It's not that they can't see the forest for the trees. It's that they can't see the forest for the fungus that they're focused on, on the bark of one tree. Uh, There's nothing there. There is no forest for them. L. Ron Hubbard wrote for people who want to explore the forest. They want to move. They want a story. They want to be moved. They want to move through time, experiencing things that will never happen to them in their real life. And those memories, if it's well-written, those memories become part of their memory, part of their human experience. And in that way, Hubbard and all of us who are trying to write for civilians, for volunteer readers who are not being required to read this, we are all doing the same job, which is creating vicarious memory that people will want to carry around with them and that might actually even change them because of what what they've seen and heard and experienced, 
because of these memories that have been put in their mind. Now, I don't think visually. I just don't. Mm-hmm. So when I'm reading, I don't picture the characters. I, you know, I just don't need it. I, I don't even look for that. All I care about is what happens and why. But that doesn't change the fact that I have my mental picture of Frodo standing at the cracks of doom. I have my mental picture of Gandalf putting the ring in an envelope up on the mantle and leaving it there as Bilbo leaves. Now I'm going to be criticized because I didn't remember that it's Bilbo who put it up there at Gandalf's urging. Don't care. What matters is that I remember that the ring was left behind when Bilbo left, with Gandalf there to guard it, but refusing to touch it or take it himself. He didn't yet know what it was, but what he suspected what it was. And then later we get the scene where he tells Frodo exactly what the ring is because he's made the test, throws it into the fire, and we have those experiences in our memory once we've read Lord of the Rings. Now, the opening of Lord of the Rings, every reader knows, it's tedious till you get to the inn at Bree. The only good chapter is the one where Gandalf explains about Dagal and Smeagol and, and who Gollum really is and what the ring really is. And that was added in later. Tolkien didn't put it in the first draft because he didn't yet know what the ring was. It was still just this cool thing that that gave Bilbo the ability to be stealthy. And so we have those things imprinted in our memory. And so I live in a world where I have carried the ring. I have been with Pippin and stared into the Palantir. I have done those things because I have those memories in my mind because the author of the story wrote it so well and so clearly that there is nothing standing between me and that memory. There are many artful literary writers who make it so deliberately difficult to even know what's going on mm-hmm. that none of, nothing can imprint on you. The only thing that imprints on you is, wow, that sure was a literary writer, wasn't it? And if you are impressed by that kind of thing, great. You're so impressed with the writer, not with the characters. You don't even know the characters. All you saw was the writing. That's not Hubbard. Hubbard was perfectly content to have his writing be affable, but not highly personal when he's narrating a story about somebody else. He wants you to care about the character. He wants you to care about the people he's writing about. Mm -hmm. And the result of that is it still holds up, still readable. All of science fiction is still present. That's one of the amazing things about our genre is that partly because we were never taught in the universities early on, and even now when we're taught, we're not taught using the same critical Procrustean bed that force fits everything into the same model. Instead, we came up with our own uh, standards of criticism. By we, I mean me and my predecessors, mostly them, not me. Mm -hmm. But um, in fanzines, in little mimeograph things, in, in... horribly reproduced things that you could hardly read. They would create a fanzine that they would mail to 10 people. And it could be one of the most important fanzines in the field because you might say something that the readers would go, oh man, that's right. And suddenly it becomes one of the critical principles by which science fiction is judged. That's the world into which L. Ron Hubbard sent his science fiction, as did everybody else was a world where the critical standards were being invented according to what the writers did. And the stories that worked, that that readers responded to, became the the measure by which everything else uh, was judged. And 
That was so liberating. No one understood at the time. In fact, people complained because, oh, the people, the professors, they don't care about what we do. They don't understand. They didn't understand. May their tribe decrease. I mean, we don't need professors. We don't write fiction that needs an interpreter unless you speak a foreign language. Then we need a translator. But our fiction is meant to be read by volunteers, unaided, and they can understand what's going on because we will give them all the information they need in order to understand the story. Even when he's writing an essay about the com- the invention of a story, which is what Magic Out of a Hat is, he still tells the story so clearly that no interpreter is needed, period. He is speaking directly into the reader's mind. He's in clarity of language. You know, I think of Isaac Asimov, probably the clearest style of any writer who ever lived. I think the finest stylist of the American plain style ever. And I only qualified as of the American plain style because so many literateurs would say, style, there's no style there. I go, yes, there is. There's a style so perfect and so transparent that people like you don't think there is a style because you are trained to notice obvious, distracting, stylistic markers. And Asimov had none. Instead, his style was so pure that he wrote a two-volume autobiography of a life in which pretty much nothing happened. The, the climax of it was the day he discovered that he was afraid to fly. He'd already flown several times, but he discovered that he panicked when it was time to fly. That was it. That's pretty much the climax, and I think that's in the first volume, if I remember correctly. But here's the thing. I bought both volumes, started the one after work, had to go to sleep finally because I couldn't beg off work, and finished it the next night. Otherwise, no break. I mean, had to go to work, but then finished it because once you started reading Asimov, you just slid through because it was so clean, no friction, nothing to slow you down or stop you. And I loved it. I loved it. And I realized I know that nothing happened that was interesting. This should not have even been readable. But instead, it was compulsively readable because Asimov could put memory clearly into my mind. The only chemistry course I ever took was reading Asimov's book on organic chemistry, beginning to end. That's it. And I have found that I understand everything I read in Scientific American. I have no problem. Yet I became a reasonably educated person in chemistry for someone who was never, ever going to work with chemistry except as an author, uh, because Asimov wrote it so clearly. That was the goal in those days. Mm -hmm. That was what you wanted to do. And Asimov himself talks about how early on when he had stories that were not selling, it finally dawned on him. They're not selling because I am filling them with adjectives and purple prose. I'm trying to make the story carry the emotion. He says, no, the events have emotion in them. My job is to just tell the story clearly. And from that moment, he started writing that clear, pellucid prose that cannot be stopped. Uh, obviously, Hubbard had a similar, either he started out that way or he knew. I think of Edgar Rice Burroughs. I, I once indexed Erwin Porges's biography of Burroughs. And because I was doing the index, I bought a copy of Tarzan, mm-hmm. tried to read it. Now, at the time, I was 23, and I was already too old. 
Because young readers, if the story is good enough, they will forgive any amount of bad writing. And there was so much bad writing. He wrote exactly the way that Asimov was trying to write when, you know, before he became good. And it's just leaden, overloaded prose, full of description, full of meaningless nothing in order to have a fine style. But then, as I was indexing the book, I came to the place where he stopped writing and started dictating. He would tell his stories orally, and a stenographer would type them up. Night and day, I discovered Chess Men of Mars was one of the dictated books, and I read that, and Burroughs was wonderful. It was a terrific story, clearly and well told, because he was talking. He wasn't trying to, quote, write well. He was trying instead to tell a story clearly. And because he's fluent in his native language and he knows how to do it, it worked. Mm -hmm. He became a good writer by not writing anymore and by dictating, by speaking his stories. And that became a, sort of a bellwether for me. I realized I want to write stories that are designed to be read aloud. I want to write so clearly that a reader will never give a wrong reading to a line of dialogue, that they'll always hear it as I meant it to be given. Now, I had training for that mm -hmm. because I was a playwright for many years. I had 20 plays or so produced, and I had those wonderful early days of rehearsal where if there's a way to read a line wrong, the actor is going to find it. But what I found was that if I rewrote until the line could not be read wrong, if I could actor-proof my scripts so that if they actually said the line I wrote, then it would be clear to the audience. There would be no problem understanding it. Now, that same technique that makes it so an actor is going to read it, cold reading, it's going to be correctly read, is what I brought to the dialogue, and the narration in my short stories, in my long fiction. Um, the reader is guided to the correct reading the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes no extra effort. I just learned how to write clearly. And that was my training to do my version of what Asimov wanted to do with his fiction. Now, here's the weird thing. I also learned from Ray Bradbury, who is known to be a very poetic writer, but I've read some of his poems, and he was kind of a, an awful poet in my opinion. Now, there are people who adore his poetry, but his prose was poetic, and his poetry is not. His poetry is leaden. It stumbles. Mm -hmm. um, but his prose flows like music, like water in a brook. You do notice it, you do notice it but you don't notice it in a way that makes you stop and study it. You notice it because it's such a pleasure to put those words in your mouth. I remember when, before I married my wife, she had some kind of procedure with her eyes, which meant that they had to have patches over them for a day. Now, to me, that would be torture. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I came over to her house and read to her from the book, I Sing the Body Electric, the title story, and another one. I don't remember now. I'd have to open the book and find it. But I read her two stories from that. I could hardly keep myself from crying as I read them because his stories became more beautiful because his language was so good. But what I realized, he was not doing style. He was just doing English blank verse. He was doing musical, a musical flow of stress, stressed and unstressed syllables, 
which I'd been doing for years anyway because I, I wrote verse plays. I wrote an iambic pentameter, hundreds and hundreds of pages of blank verse. And I realized that's what I should be doing is writing stuff that flows like Bradbury. So Asimov gave me the instruction to be clear above all. And Bradbury gave me permission to be smooth, to have the language flow. All of those things are possible without ever violating that idea that you don't want to put any roadblocks in the way of the reader. Bradbury put in no roadblocks. He made it smoother. He made it more fun. You're going down the river, not in a tube where your legs are bouncing on the bottom. You're going down in a boat where you stay dry, but you get the ebb and flow of the current. You get the sense of a wild, wonderful ride down a river. And Asimov gives you the sense of moving effortlessly through the landscape, seeing everything that's important enough to notice without ever noticing that you're being guided as to what you're going to see. That's what makes it kind of the golden age to me, Mm -hmm. is yes, no holds barred, all free, but in science fiction, we still have all of those writers whose works still live. Asimov is gone, but you can still get his books. Uh, a lot of writers, when they, when they go, and they're not producing new books, they lose their space on the shelf. Uh, that's okay. If you wrote for people of your time and they liked what you did, somebody liked what you did, not everybody, but some, mm-hmm. that's good enough. That's all you're asking for. But you can go and read L. Ron Hubbard. You can read Isaac Asimov. You can read Ray Bradbury. You can read Arthur C. Clarke. You can read the stories of every period of science fiction. You want, after the Golden Age, you want the Campbellian era. Blish is still in print. You want to read the beginning of the experimentalists. Philip K. Dick, still there. Thomas Dish, still in print. You can still read it. It's all there. And you want to read the new wave of science fiction. Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream is still there. It's still magical. It's still gloriously overwrought, uh, which is what he was doing. Uh, what was it? That said? Something Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man. Uh, still a brilliant piece of fiction. And right at the time when I was reading and writing absurdist uh, plays, I'm getting absurdist science fiction. But then you move right on and you've got uh, John Varley, Going back to an old day, you've got Larry Niven, who never stopped writing the clear uh, prose of the Campbellian writers. Uh, he's the heir to Heinlein. He's the heir to Clark. And uh, wonderfully, still working, still mm-hmm. producing. But he's what kept that kind of science fiction alive, despite the fact of the golden age. Modernism in la- mainstream literature became so dominant that when they started teaching contemporary literature in the universities, they never used to. It, they, the courses were all designed to show you why the modernists were the only writers who mattered. And, and they weren't, mm-hmm. but the courses were designed that way, and they still are. There is no reason in the world why any literature student today should look at the works of James Joyce and admire his experimental manner. No, we know the results. His experiments all failed. Mm -hmm. They failed utterly. If someone wants to make a living as a writer, they are never going to try to duplicate Ulysses and certainly not Finnegan's Wake. 
They are not touching that with a 10-foot pole because no one wants to buy a book of fiction that has to be studied and interpreted. Right. They, they will read it for a class if they have to, mm-hmm. but they won't really enjoy it very much unless they really get on the same wavelength as the writer, which almost no one is with Joyce. He was deliberately writing fiction that no one could read on purpose without help. He even sent to his friends individual letters where he would tell what one chapter was to this friend, different chapter to another friend. He told one friend, no, this chapter is the sirens chapter. It represents the sirens in Ulysses' voyage. So only sounds are told. You know, the whole story of the chapter is told in sound alone. Complete failure. It's unreadable. But the universities still teach it as if it were the greatest work of fiction ever. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible failure. The greatest work of fiction of the 20th century was despised by all the critics. Why? Because people like you and me could read it without any interpretation. And it's Lord of the Rings. It has flaws. You have to be patient with parts of it. Mm -hmm. But those flaws are not because... I mean, we have never had a work of fiction written by someone who understood the language as deeply and richly and clearly and thoroughly as J.R.R. Tolkien. That's a fact. He is simply, he was the master of his language and about a dozen others. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) he was like Fangorn Forest, going to Helm's Deep, moving swiftly, but taking all the roots along. All the roots. And so when he used a word, he knew where that word came from. Mm -hmm. He knew the etymology of the word. He knew what it used to mean. He knew, knew what it means now. He knew what he wanted to bend it to mean. And he knew how to put it in a context where his meaning would become clear. We've never had a better, better trained, better educated writer than Tolkien. Lord of the Rings is an amazing experiment to use modern novel techniques, which he used. The viewpoint, the, you know, all of the stuff that was new and modern, post-Jane Austen stuff, to tell an ancient story which it also is. It has that ancient feel all the way through. And so that came out of the same era as the Golden Age. Now, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien both talked about writing fantasy and writing science fiction. And Tolkien decided to leave the science fiction to C.S. Lewis, and he wrote his Paralandra trilogy, and uh, uh, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. I don't think they're very good. I don't enjoy them. I'd never enjoyed them, not on first reading, not since. But it was at a time when no one knew what science fiction really was. It was whatever the people who were writing it said it was. Right. And he was in a position where when he wrote it, it would be published not as, an, as installments in a magazine, but as individual books. In America, nobody could get that. I just recently uh, read something by someone who had a, he had a fictional character who supposedly read the, it was a period piece, had read the Foundation Trilogy when it first came out. The the story was set in 1953. Foundation came out serialized in astounding science fiction. It didn't have book publication until years after that. Years! And so it was a British writer, and she had no idea that... The copyright date was not when it was published in book form. It was when it was published between the pages of a magazine in multiple installments. So I loved that because I thought, okay, they they don't know the circumstance of the writing, but 
That was the glory and the frustration of writing science fiction at that time in America. It, you could, it was free. You could do whatever you thought your readers could bear. And you could take them wherever you thought they could understand you taking them. And because it was being published on pulp paper in installments in a magazine with a despicable cover with hideous monster art and half-clad women on the cover so that everyone would know it was trash and pay no attention to it in a serious critical vein, science fiction was free to invent itself. And L. Ron Hubbard was part of that invention. And when he wrote about writing, as in Magic Out of a Hat, he wasn't teaching you how to write science fiction. He was just teaching you how to tell stories, how to come up with an idea and translate it into something coherent that would hold together and give the reader satisfaction upon reaching the end. As far as I'm concerned, we have had many cultural changes, and much fiction from that era doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. Science fiction a little better than most, because it was trying to cut loose from its original moorings anyway. But the project is still the same. And when L. Ron Hubbard writes about how to go about thinking of a story, inventing it, shaping it, structuring it, it's still worth paying attention to because the job hasn't changed. I learn more. You know, I, I listen to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice on audiobook. I have three different recordings, one that I can't listen to because the narrator was not taught, not helped to learn how to pronounce words that we don't use anymore. So she pronounces the name of a, of a carriage that is partly French, but pronounced the way the Brits do it. So it was a chaise. They pronounced it chaise. The French would have said chaise. But this one, this writer said chase. Made mm-hmm. the S unvocalized. What was a chase? Who would you, how would you write a chase? Uh, it took a while before I realized what she was mispronouncing. I don't listen to that one anymore. But the other two, the Rosamund Pike version and the earlier one, are both outstanding. And uh, so I alternate them and, and listen to whichever one I'm in the mood for. So when I finish an audiobook, I always have on my audiobook uh, player one of the Pride and Prejudice volumes. And I'll just start anywhere, wherever it was that I left off last. And I always know right where I am. I know the book so well. But Jane Austen is still teaching us all how to write. She still is because mm-hmm. she was inventing viewpoint as she wrote, as she went. And she did experimental stuff. Her novel, Mansfield Park, was an experiment to see whether you could have, as a protagonist, a woman, a young woman, who did only the things that society said young women should be able to do and never did any of the things that they were told not to do because it was unladylike or unbecoming or inappropriate for someone of their age. Otherwise, her heroines were all rather outrageous at their time. They were opinionated and people called them on it. But uh, the character of Fanny in Mansfield Park never does anything. She sees bad things going on. She knows they're bad. She does not interfere with them in any significant way. She never argues. She never puts herself forward. And that's an experiment, to have an inactive protagonist. Now, we end up rather liking her and being glad that it turns out well for her through no effort of her own except for somebody recognizing her merit. Because Jane Austen knew that never putting yourself forward was not going to give you a productive life. But she performed the experiment, and the result was that the bad guys, the villains, dominate the book completely. 
that's an experiment from which we can still learn. Unlike Ulysses, where we're told, really, don't try this at home, kids. It doesn't work. It'll end badly. Better to put a cape on and jump from the roof. Uh, That's safer. It's not as if science fiction is cut off from the rest of the world of literature. It's cut off from the insanity of treating modernism as if their experiments were final and brilliant and to be emulated. We shouldn't be emulating D.H. Lawrence when he tried to create heroes who had no human volition but were instead just products of evolution. That was his project, and it's a failure. Virginia Woolf had such sparkling wit when she wrote essays. And, you know, you can read to the lighthouse and be moved by it, but it's tough sledding. It's tough sledding to find anybody to care about. But when you read Foundation, you have story. Mm-hmm. And even if it isn't dependent upon character angst, it's dependent. I mean, the characters can be told apart. They're different from each other. This is not where people are just placeholders. The character in Arthur C. Clarke's The Star doesn't matter at all. He's unmemorable. The whole idea is, good heavens, this star was destroyed, destroyed the civilization that had grown up on a planet nearby in order to be the star of Bethlehem. Talk about irony. And so, and, and it's a religious person seeing it. So for him, it's an existential crisis. That's all. We don't know what happens to him afterward. We don't know, care. Mm-hmm. He, we knew he was there just to be an observer. You could write that in the 1930s and early 40s. You could write that. And no one cared that there wasn't characterization. But there was characterization in Asimov. Uh, there was characterization in Hubbard. He knew he didn't have a story in Magic Out of a Hat until he had a character with goals, with friends, with people that he needed to help. Then he had a story. And those things are true now as they were then. That's great. And this is, I think this is important too for um, people to understand so that, I mean, this essay is, is being made available with this podcast that so people can actually read the essay as well as listen. Oh, um, good. I hope they do. Yeah. So this will be available for that. So um, in the podcast description, you will find a link to download a PDF of the L. Ron Hubbard article, Magic Out of a Hat. Thank you very much for your exposition on this and how it is very much applicable now as it was when it was written 60, 70 years ago. So, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. And once again, thank you very much, Scott. It's been my pleasure. 